Shelter Cove online. We are so glad that you're joining us today for this sermon. We hope and pray that this message encourages you, that you learn something, that you enjoy it. But more than that, we just pray that God would move in your life, that he would reveal some more of himself to you today. If you would like to respond to this message in any way, you can contact us at sheltercovelive.com. Have an amazing rest of your day. Welcome, everybody. Great to be with you tonight. Take your Bibles, if you don't mind, and join me in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, as we continue in this series in the book of Colossians, I'm excited to do that with you tonight as we pick it up where we left off just a few weeks ago before Father's Day when James Bailey, Pastor James Bailey, taught his very first sermon in this room, and I just thought he did a tremendous job. And I appreciate what he had to say. Good for you, Jamesy. And uh, I'm honored to pick it up where where James left off. We're going to start in verse 16. For the most part, we're going to go from 16 to the uh, end of the chapter there. But I'm going to reach back into James's text from a couple weeks ago. And I want to look, before I get going here, at verse 8. All right, because this is a great anchor verse for this whole section. This really sets the stage, not just for the content that James went over, but the content that I'm going to cover tonight. It really sets the theme. So I want you to look at this with me. This is Colossians 2, verse 8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This church in Colossae, which by the way is in Asia Minor, it's a Gentile city in Asia Minor, that's modern day Turkey. Uh, They had been experiencing uh, an, an invasion of false teaching. There's been some heresy that has crept into this church. And so the apostle Paul is dealing with that. And he uses this phrase, this operative phrase that has three components. And we see the words philosophy, empty deceit, and human tradition. And in the context that he is speaking, these three things, what they have in common is they are all man-made. They're man's ideas. They are not from God. And those ideas have seeped into this church in Colossae. Let me ask you a question. Do man-made ideas ever creep into the church today? They do, don't they? So what does that tell us? That tells us that there's gonna be something applicable here for us, not just for Colossae. So we're going to pay close attention to what Paul says regarding this content tonight. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to dive in. we got a lot to cover, and we got some baptisms to get to later, so I don't want to waste any time. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, we just ask your blessing upon our time in the Word. As we look at these things that are detrimental to the church, things that Paul says can take us captive, God. We, we don't want to be like a vessel on the sea that gets accosted and boarded by pirates and plundered and And uh, the rest of us taken into captivity, God, we want to be firm and resolute and stand against such things. Would you show us how to do that? And God, I would be remiss in this moment if I did not express deep, heartfelt gratitude and praise to you for what you have wrought in our nation over the last 24, 48 hours, God, through this decision at the Supreme Court level that has overturned something that was an abomination for nearly 50 years whereby millions and millions of unborn children lost their lives. God, may this new ruling result in the saving of many lives each year. And may we as the church who who are called by your name, may we step up to our responsibility to love all people, born and pre-born, 
and to do all we can to make sure that they know that they are loved and cared for, not only by us, but by a God who made them. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's look at these detrimental man-made philosophies that invade not just at Colossae, but the church today. What is it about philosophy and empty deceit and man-made tradition in the church that is so dangerous? I'm gonna give you three things just off the bat here tonight. First of all, they're dangerous because they're not obviously sinful. They're not always obviously sinful. They may come across as, as harmless. There may not be anything overt in these ideas, and that's what makes them so effective. They just kind of creep in. They walk in the front door, and they make sense. They're rational. They seem, they seem harmless. They almost seem deeply spiritual at times. They're couched in Christian language, and they're very, very appealing. And it takes a savvy Christian. It takes an educated Christian, someone that is cautious, someone who knows their Bible, all right? You gotta be so familiar with the genuine article that when something counterfeit comes across your line of sight, you call it out right away. The second reason these are dangerous, and we're gonna get into the details of these as we move on. But the second reason that they're dangerous is that fundamentally they sound right, but they begin with an error in thinking. And you gotta be able to catch that error, all right? If you start with a faulty premise, you're gonna be way off course. If you're, at, if you're out on the open sea and you have a general idea where you wanna go and you're kinda eyeballing it and you don't have the exact coordinates and you're gonna go this direction, if you're off by a degree or two, depending on how far you go, you might miss your mark by several hundred miles. You gotta have the right coordinates. So you wanna start with the right premise. And it's for this reason, as James walked through it a few weeks ago, that Paul, in the early part of chapter two, he presents this huge chunk of theology. He covers the deity of Christ. He covers the sinfulness of man. He covers uh, the atonement, the substitutionary payment by Christ on the cross for our sin. He covers forgiveness and redemption and the complete victory that the believer has. Why does he go through all this stuff? Don't they know it? It's because the way you combat heresy in the church is through teaching sound doctrine. You expound on that which is sound, all right? You take the scripture and you present those ideas that are unchanging, that are the bedrock principles of the faith. You give the foundation. And he was telling them that they are victorious. You know what? I'm telling you that. You are victorious. I want everybody to say, I am victorious. I, am victorious. I want you to be more convincing. I am, victorious. I am victorious. And I want you to say this. There is a foundation to my victory. There is a foundation to your victory. You know what that foundation is? It's everything that Paul covered in chapter two. All of that, the deity of Christ, the sinfulness of man, the redemption of man through faith and the shed blood atonement of Jesus Christ, the fact that he rose from the dead means one day you will spend eternity in heaven. That is the foundation for your faith and that is where your victory is derived. But these people creeping into Colossae, they wanna add to that foundation. They're saying, oh, it's nice that you believe in Jesus. It's nice that you trust him as your savior. But you know, you got to do these other things. You got to believe these other things. You got to practice these other, you got to experience this other component to really be saved. And they're adding to that foundation. And so this is the third thing that makes them dangerous. They assume in your notes, they assume basic Christianity is incomplete. It's not complete. Now, what is this heresy? 
that Paul was facing. Specifically, historically, what was it? Some scholars uh, think it was, it was a form of uh, Gnosticism, you know? Gnosticism is a belief system. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And Gnosticism taught that God was this perfect spirit. He could not interact with the material corrupt world. And so the only way to know God was through some special divine revelation that not everybody got. And it was given to a select few and they had this secret knowledge and they had to impart it. And you had to trust their knowledge. It was that sort of a thing. Uh, Gnosticism really didn't come about in full until after Paul wrote these letters. So at best, we were, we were talking about some early form of Gnosticism here. It might also be a Jewish sect called the Essenes uh, who had beliefs that are reflective of what we're gonna discover as we read on. But regardless, here's what I want you to see. The heresy at this church in Colossae attempts to complete Christianity through a couple of means. We're gonna look at two areas that fit into this category of human philosophy that Paul is going to contend with. And the first thing that Paul's gonna tackle here in your notes is legalism. Legalism. Now, how many of you have ever heard that word before? You know the word legalism. I will say it gets overused in the church. People throw that around. They say, yeah, church is pretty legalistic. And, and what they typically mean is it's, it's an old-fashioned church. And we like to refer to people who like things that are a little old-fashioned. They like their hymns. They like to dress a little more formal. They like things a little quieter. Sometimes those people get that label of being legalistic. And that is not what the word means. I'm just here to tell you it's not fair to call people that uh, because of those reasons. Legalism, let me give you the definition in your notes. Legalism is defining your spirituality by your ability to keep man-made rules. You keep a set of rules. Now, as Christians, we kind of do that, don't we? We keep a set of rules. There are, there are moral directives that Christ has left us that we follow, but that's not the same thing. Obedience is not legalism. That's obedience. And we obey Christ for what reason? Because we love him and we wanna be like him, right? Those are valid reasons to obey and we're called to obey and he is our master. And so we serve him because he saved us. We don't obey out of a desire to earn the favor of God. You see the difference? You obey out of love or you obey to earn favor. When you obey to earn favor, that's legalism. Another thing that could be legalism is if you uh, practice morality in order to gain the favor of other Christians or to be elevated uh, in the sight of the church, to be seen as some sort of spiritual superhero or something like that. Those are legalistic tendencies. Now this has thrived in religious circles. We see it in scripture. It's thrived in Judaism. By Jesus' day, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, they were legalistic. They, they, they had manipulated the law into this thing that you got to keep it during the favor of God. Legalism has thrived in Catholicism. Some of you were raised Catholic. You know what I mean. When, when they equate moral living and, and weekly confession and you know all of these things with earning salvation, it's even thrived in Protestant evangelical circles. I've known a whole lot of Baptists that were legalistic, okay? When you equate uh, worshiping on a specific day uh, with dressing a certain way, parting your hair on the right side, uh, reading the right version of scripture, mainly the King James, all right? Uh, when you uh, say you gotta be baptized in order to be saved, 
When, when you say that, that you got to listen to the right kind of music and all of this stuff is equated with salvation. If you don't do these things, look this way, sound this way, act this way, you're not born again. That's legalism. Okay. Now, how does Paul deal with this? Look at verse 16. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Now stop right there. Language is so important. He says, therefore, as James reminded us a couple weeks ago, when you see therefore, you should stop and ask what it's there for. What is that therefore, therefore? What, what did I just remind you that Paul went through in the, in the beginning of chapter two? What did he talk about to them? He said, Christ is Lord, you are sinful, right? He walked through all the basics, gave them this whole theological treatise, talked about justification by faith alone, uh, redemption through grace alone, victory through Christ alone. He said, you have complete victory, Christian. Therefore, what? Let no one pass judgment on you. Since you have this victory, because of this foundation, do not let anyone judge you. Don't you let some bozo come in here and tell you that something is not what you have already learned it to be. You know the truth. Don't you let somebody come in and tell you different from what you already know in terms of your salvation, what I've already taught you as an, as an apostle. I used to work at a credit card company. Now, some of you have strong feelings about credit cards and I respect that. I have come to agree with many of them because of my experience. This was years ago and uh, I worked at this credit card company. I was, I was young and poor and a newlywed and some of those are synonymous. Anyway... I didn't have any experience. I was trained in nothing and you didn't have to have experience to work at this credit card company. They would train you and they would throw you in a cubicle and give you a headset and a phone and off you go. I worked in the retention department. Now, what that means is when somebody is angry and they're calling in to cancel their credit card, it's my job to talk them out of it. And that's hard enough. This was even worse because it was no ordinary card. This was a subprime credit card. Let me tell you about this card. This card had a $300 limit. It had $175 in upfront fees. It had a $50 startup fee. It had a $75 annual fee. It had a $20 monthly fee. It had a $25 late fee. All right, now this was a subprime card. It was for people who had really poor credit, could not get a credit card, or for people who had no credit and were trying to build that credit, and, and th this was like the only card that they could get. Now, most of the people calling in, they didn't need this card. I could see their credit report. Their credit was fine. They, they had no need of this whatsoever. Most of them didn't even mean to sign up for it. They'd been on some lending site, and they filled out a thing, and it was for this card they didn't know, and a, a, pay, a due date had already come and gone, and now they had a, a late fee, and the card was locked, and they couldn't use it, and so they were just like, yeah, just cancel my card. And it's my job to talk them out of it. And I didn't know how to do that. I mean, what in the world are the selling points of this card for somebody who doesn't need it? But there were people around me that were lifers. They'd been there for years. And they knew all the lingo and they'd learned all the tricks and they knew exactly what to say to these people on the phone to convince them that they needed this card. And they learned how to scare the living daylights out of these people to convince them, you know, you could destroy your credit like that. You, you wouldn't even know that you destroyed your credit. This will lock it in. This will protect you. You need this card. You'd be amazed how many saves they had. All right. And I was listening to it. And I finally, I, I couldn't get the hang of it. And I quit and I went home and I took like 
you know, 50 showers. And, and then, I became, then, I, then I became a pastor. <laughs> and the rest is history. Listen, Paul has done all he can here to let these Colossians know that their eternal credit score is perfect in the eyes of God. And the, these Essene, Gnostic retention agents are trying to convince them otherwise. And he's working against that. And in doing so, these heretics are passing judgment. Now, how are they passing judgment? Look at verse 16. It says that they're doing it in questions of food and drink and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, what are those things? Those are all rituals. Those are Jewish rituals. Uh, now, keep something in mind. Colossae is not a Jewish town, all right? These are not Jews. These are Gentiles. They don't know anything about this stuff. They didn't grow up with it. And so this group is foisting these concepts, these rituals, on this people, they're saying, you've got to do this stuff. If you want to be saved, you have to add this to Jesus. It's Jesus plus this, okay? And they're convincing them of all of this stuff. Now, what are these rituals? Uh, food and drink. Were there dietary guidelines in the Old Testament? Yes, there were. Yes, there were. The law dictated you couldn't eat certain things. You, had, you couldn't eat certain things together, right? Uh, the festivals, keep the festivals. What's that talking about? That's Pentecost. That's Passover. That's tabernacles, the Feast of Weeks, all this stuff, right? Uh, were those in the Old Testament? Yes, that's part of the law. What is this new moon business? That's the first day of the month. That's when the Jews would sacrifice. That was biblical under the Old Covenant. You've got the Sabbath. We know what that is. That's the day of rest. Lots of regulations, lots of rules regarding the Sabbath day. Now, were all of those rituals bad? No. No. Not in their inception. But let me tell you something about those rituals. Those were for Israel. Those were for the Jews. Why? Because that was the covenant people of God. It was to separate them from all the other peoples of the earth that were pagan in their culture. And it was under the old covenant. You got to know that in that context. The second thing you need to know is what we learn in verse 17. Here's what Paul says. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, these rituals are shadows. They are a, a, a foretaste. They point ahead to something. The things to come, they were never, ever, ever a means of salvation. Nobody was ever expected to do these things to be saved. All right? They were never justified because they, they worshiped on the Sabbath or because they celebrated uh, the feasts or, or sacrificed on the new moon. All right, they were born again, or they were not born again. They were justified by faith alone in the promise of God. But all of these rituals pointed ahead to Christ. The things to come, who came? Jesus came. Do you need the shadows anymore? No, you do not. You do not need the shadows anymore. They are merely symbols. Paul talks in past tense all throughout the early part of this verse or chapter. Verse 11, he says, you were circumcised. Uh, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, uh, you were raised. It's already done. Verse 13, you were dead in your trespasses, now made alive by God, having forgiven all our trespasses. It's all past tense. It's done. God did it. And, and we keep adding. We keep, we keep looking for symbols to add to what is already done. I can't think of anything more offensive to Christ by the followers who claim his name, who claim to follow him, than trying to add to what he's already done. 
The other night, my wife did something really special in the kitchen. She made this sauce, right? She, she, uh, she, she baked some spaghetti squash and she seasoned it, amen. And she made this, she has this gourmet friend that gave her some tips and she took this spaghetti sauce that she'd made and she roasted some garlic and then she took an onion and she put it in this pot and she put it on low heat for like an hour. And then she put the roasted garlic in with it. And then she put the sauce in with it. And then she put some basil in there and she put it on low and she let it simmer for four hours. And man, it started, the aroma filled the house. So this has been, this has been a process, it's been a five-hour process, this sauce, just the sauce. And I come downstairs and it's dinner time and she goes, okay, it's ready. I'm like, all right, bring it on. And she, I get a bowl and the spaghetti squash is in there and then she puts this sauce on there and it smells amazing. And, and, and silly me, out of habit, out of habit, I do what I usually do, which is I go to the fridge, I got my bowl, and I open the fridge, and I reach in, and I grab my bottle of Frank's Red Hot. I just, I just, I use a lot of, is anybody like Frank's Red Hot, anybody? Okay, and my people, all right. But I wasn't thinking, and I turn around, and there she is. She's like, what are you doing? And here's me, I look like a brook trout. What? She goes, you're not going to put that on this sauce that I slaved over for five hours. And I go, what? No, oh, no, no, no. This is for the six-year-old. Here, honey. You know. and, but the insult was already done, right? We insult a holy God who sacrificed everything for us when we try to add to what he's already done. And we go to the symbol. Why do we always fixate on something as, as silly as a symbol? What is a symbol? In your notes, legalism relies on symbols over substance. It's Christ to whom the substance belongs, but we would fixate on the symbols. Man just does this. We have this tendency. Romans 1 talks about it. Paul writes about men worshiping creation rather than the creator. We always go to the lesser thing. We would always fixate on that stuff. Symbols don't even do anything. They represent something that does something. The bat signal does not stop crime. Batman stops crime. Okay? I now have the attention of every geek in the room, all right? It, it is not the symbol that matters most. And yet we go back and we putz around with the nostalgia of the past. And when we do that, uh, we, we are engaging in something that is, number one, pointless, and number two, dangerous. Okay? So look where Paul is going to go next. He's dealt with the legalism. Now in verse 18, he, in your notes, he addresses mysticism. Mysticism. Now what is that? What is mysticism? I'm going to give you a definition. Here it goes. Mysticism is the pursuit of a deeper or higher spiritual experience based on personal intuition. And the operative word here is experience. It is highly experiential. Uh, it is not even something that you can define because it's different for everybody. It's an experience. Your experience is different from my experience. But people claim to have touched God somehow via some experience that they've had. Okay? And as he deals with this, look at verse 18. He, he, this, he starts to sound familiar in how he's approaching this. He says, let no one disqualify you. Let no one. Now, here, here we go again, right? There's no therefore, but the sentiment is the same as before. Since you have the victory and you know the foundation, let no one disqualify you. No, no, 
uh, uh, not only should you not let some jack wagon come in here and try to tell you something that you know not to be true and, and convince you that you've got to follow some ordinance and you've got to obey some ritual to be saved. But furthermore, don't you let somebody strip you of what belongs to you. Don't you let them take away what is yours and is given to you by God. That is, you don't buy that lie, okay? That is not, what they're saying is not true. When they deny that you are who God says you are, disqualify you. I'm from Oklahoma originally. One of our state heroes is Jim Thorpe. You guys know who Jim Thorpe is? Uh, if you don't know the name, he's the greatest athlete you've never heard of. He's, he's probably the greatest athlete of all time, quite honestly. If you look at what he achieved, he was an amazing athlete. He was born long time ago in Oklahoma. It wasn't even called Oklahoma then. It was Indian territory. He was born, he's a Native American, born a very poor family. The Thorpes moved to Pennsylvania when he was young. Uh, he attended college at Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And they had sports there. And Jim was walking by the track one day. He had on uh, coveralls. He had on a thick hickory work shirt and he walked by the high jumpers and these guys are, are doing the high jump. He thinks, well, that looks fun. I'll give that a go. And he tries it. And in street clothes, coveralls, this guy clears the bar, which is set at five foot nine. And the next day, the coach of the track team chases Jim Thorpe down uh, and he, he grabs him by the sleeve and Jim says, have I done something wrong? He goes, wrong, son, you've only broken the school high jump record in coveralls. And in no short order, Jim was a member of the track team and he, he, was, he was an all-star on the track team. Not only that, but this school was so small, this, this track coach also happened to be the football coach. And get this, the name of that coach, you will probably know, his name was Pop Warner. One of the most influential coaches in the history of football in the early days of the game. And so Jim was now on the football team for Carlisle, which was a teeny tiny little school, but they happened to beat that year. He played four positions. They beat the number one ranked school at the time, which was Harvard. They beat West Point. And he was just a tremendous athlete. And he went to the Olympics in 1912 in Stockholm, Sweden, in track and field. He had two major events, the pentathlon and the decathlon. Now here's the legend, all right? The day of the pentathlon, it's minutes before the whole thing starts, and someone has stolen Jim's shoes. He cannot find his running shoes. And it's obviously, uh, you know, a, a somebody motivated to take him out of contention. And so in a, in, a, in a hasteful rush, he scurries around and he's looking in trash cans and he finds a couple of shoes in different trash cans. They are not mates. They, they are mismatched shoes. They're different colors. They're different sizes. One is too small. One is too big. He puts them on. I have a picture of him wearing these shoes. He puts on several pairs of socks on one foot so it fits this shoe. And that day, Jim Thorpe won two gold medals. One of the greatest performances of all time. At the award ceremony, the King of Sweden, Gustav, King Gustav, awarded him these medals. And he said to him, he said, you, sir, are the greatest athlete in the world. Words of the king. Now, that was the greatest day of Jim Thorpe's life. But six months later, the news broke that Jim Thorpe, prior to the Olympics, had competed in professional baseball. He was a naive college student who was broke and to earn a little money between 
the semesters, he played in the Carolina League for $2 a game. And that violated the Olympic Committee's rules. You must maintain an amateur status. And so he was disqualified. He was stripped of his medals. And he never recovered. The rest of his life is a very sad story. Uh, he fell into deep despondency and depression. He couldn't hold down a job. He became a chronic alcoholic. Uh, he died young. Uh, he died penniless. He was never able to get past what the world had said to him, that you are disqualified. And he completely forgot the words of the king. You are the greatest in this world. And sometimes we believe the lie that we are disqualified and we forget what the king has told us, who we are in his sight. Paul says, let no one disqualify you. And the Colossians are in danger of buying into this lie of disqualification because someone in the scripture goes on to say that someone is insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. That's what Paul writes in the rest of this verse. Now there's lots to unpack here. Uh, what is asceticism? That, that's what they're pushing on the Colossians. You gotta be an ascetic. Asceticism is a lifestyle of renouncing anything that distracts from enlightenment. All right, uh, it's living a life of self-abasement. It's, it's extreme self-denial. We see this in Hinduism and in Buddhism and in some forms of Judaism and Islam, even in Christianity and Catholicism, St. Francis of Assisi taking a vow of poverty, a vow of silence, a vow of celibacy. All right, it's total self-denial. Now, is self-denial wrong? No, we're told to deny self in scripture, but what is the motivation for that? For example, fasting. Why do Christians fast? We fast to remove the distraction uh, of food for a time so that we can pray and we can focus on God's will and get close to God. In asceticism, the motivation is to achieve a higher plane of spirituality. And so Paul condemns this and, and implies that it leads to this dark practice of worshiping angels, the text says. What does scripture say about that? Well, it's clear that that would be forbidden. I mean, the violation of the Ten Commandments is inherent in the worship of angels. The Ten Commandments, excuse me, the First Commandment uh, says that you're to worship God and God alone. There is one God. I'm the only God. Worship me alone. You shall have no other gods before me. In Revelation 19, John encounters an angel, falls down before him. The angel says, don't do that. Worship God. Worship God. Paul encounters many angels, never engages in worship. Does this happen today? This practice of worshiping angels. Well, we know in Catholicism, praying to angels is encouraged. They pray to dead saints. Why wouldn't they pray to Saint Michael? And they do. Uh, but it also can be a preoccupation among Protestants, among evangelicals. Some of you may be familiar with, with a certain large charismatic church in Northern California that, that has a lot of angelic references as of late in the last decade. They've talked about experiences during worship, in their, in their church environment where gold dust comes down from above during worship, indicating the presence of divine beings. Uh, feathers float down, they say, in worship services. And that, that implies, uh, supposedly, that there are angels present as their worship. Feathers? I mean, I know scripture says angels have wings. It doesn't mention feathers, and besides, I don't, what is exactly happening here? Are the angels molting? Are we, 
You know, is somebody plucking angels during greater you Lord? What is going on? I'm not really, really sure. I, I would submit to you that some of these stories are about achieving a greater experience, a greater spiritual high. That seems to be what drives it. We don't worship angels. I don't know what the point of that would be. An angel didn't save me. Furthermore, I think Satan loves this sort of thing. Satan was an angel after all. And he would love for worship to go to anyone other than God. But this is all deception. It's all about more experience, greater experience, deeper, higher, more impressive. That is what we're dealing with. It's an idol, the idol of experience. And Paul goes on in this verse to say that they are going on in detail. This deceiver is going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. In your notes, mysticism is perpetually unsatisfied and produces pride. He's puffed up, all right? And he's unsatisfied. You've always got to have something greater. Every experience uh, makes you crave a greater experience. It's never enough. You're never satisfied. I've got to have one more, something bigger, a, a vision, a greater, a greater emotional high. I think this is why you see people come up in highly experiential environments. One day, they just walk away from the faith. They can't handle the pressure of always having to repeat the same old emotional experience. Always more, always greater. And it produces pride. He says, he says they're puffed up. You know, I've talked to people who, who claim to have this secret knowledge. You know, God told me to tell you. He did? He told you to tell me about me? Really? That's interesting because I, I, I pray every day. I'm in the word every day, but he told you. What did he say? And it's always something very specific. Like it's this direct revelation. It's this, you know, verbatim. He's speaking on behalf of God. Really? Wow, that's, that's amazing. Uh, and the implication is God had to tell me because you're not at the same level that I'm at. You're not the real deal. I'm the real deal. And you see, they're puffed up. And the word for puffed up literally means they're full of hot air. Literally what it means. They're prideful. And not only that, he says they're puffed up without reason. He's like, they don't even have a good reason to be puffed up because the visions they have aren't even valid. They're not even biblical. These aren't New Testament prophets. They're speaking out of their own fallen imaginations. My, kid, my kids were in uh, Wizard of Oz last year at school, that production. My daughter was Dorothy. My son was the scarecrow. And there's that great scene with, uh, with the wizard, they come before the wizard at the Emerald City and he appears as this giant green head and he's, you know, there's fire and he gives them a, a directive and they go and they do this thing and then they come back and, and when they come back, they notice the curtain shifts and they can see the little man back there working the levers and speaking into the speaker thing and, and he's exposed and he knows that he's been caught. And so he tries to cover, he says, pay no mind to the man behind the curtain. Listen, Paul is pulling back the curtain. He's saying the frauds, they're phonies. Don't buy the lie because there's only one source by which we can know God. And we see it in verse 19, look at it. Paul says, and not holding fast to the head. Who's the head? Christ is the head. We're the body, he's the head. If my body gets separated from my head, that's no good. I need to cling to the head, keep connected to the head. The body must stay connected to the head. 
and the head is where we get our knowledge. You don't get your knowledge from some vision. You don't get your knowledge from some encounter or mystical experience, some uh, self-proclaimed prophet. You don't need a new word. You need to rely on the word, the word made flesh, amen? Amen. And you have his words before you in the Holy Scripture. That is where wisdom is found. And if we as Christians want true growth, true growth in your notes, we got to cling to Christ alone and claim what is ours. We got we to gotta claim what is ours. He doesn't want us to go out and seek things more than what he has given us. We have the foundation. Now we live the foundation. We have trusted in him as Savior. His spirit indwells us, and we follow that spirit. You don't need more of that. Now, there's indwelling of the spirit, and there's filling of the spirit. But filling of the spirit does not mean that you get more spirit. It's about surrender. You're surrendering your life in greater capacity to the spirit's control. So you don't get more spirit. When you're filled with spirit, you don't get more spirit. Spirit gets more of you. And so that's what he wants. But he doesn't want us to seek some, some you know, extra experience. He goes on in verse 19 and talking about from the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. We don't get growth from man. This is a growth that comes from God. And you know what? There are no shortcuts with God. It's like that sauce my wife made. It's, it cooks slow, but it's good. You don't nuke it. It, it, it's not, it's not immediate. It's not an experiential thing. You are born again. You are justified. That's the past tense of your salvation. Now you are being sanctified throughout the course of your life. And that's the present tense of your salvation. And then one day you will stand before God and you will be glorified. And that's the future tense of your salvation. But it's a process. This sanctification is a process. You don't become sanctified fully overnight. God is working on you to make you his design. There are no shortcuts. Your son or daughter may come to you. A teenager may say, I'm ready to get my driver's license because I'm ready to be done with a curfew. I want to stay out as long as I want. I want to drink. I want to smoke. I want to see who I want, when I want. I want to do what I want. I'm ready to be an adult. I'm ready to be mature. Well, none of those things have anything to do with being an adult or being mature. Just because you do those things doesn't make you any of that. Where does maturity come from? It comes from learning humility. It comes from responsibility. It comes from being kind. It comes from learning discipline. You don't just put on a costume and voila, it happens. I have two daughters. When they were little girls, at some point, they both put on their mama's lipstick and their mama's high heels and jewelry and all that stuff. And that didn't make them a full-grown woman. Of course, and we knew that. But maturity is not seeking the supernatural. It is clinging to Christ. Paul wraps it up, verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in this world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as if they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I don't care what experience you have. It has nothing to do with making you a more spiritual believer because they come and then they're gone. 
I watched a prominent guy late at night. I turned on the TV and I watched a prominent uh, preacher. We'll call him a preacher. I don't think he's a pastor. And it was a highly charismatic service. And I'm not here knocking on your background if you came from that kind of a church. I'm not denying certain spiritual gifts. There are some that I do deny, and this was one of them. He was taking off his jacket and throwing it at people, and they were falling down. And then he turned to the choir and he said, are you ready? And they're losing their minds. And he said, tonight is your night. And they're, they're going crazy. And he told them to all hold hands. I wonder why he did that. And then he went, and they all just like dominoes. And the place just went nuts. Listen to me. Those types of experiences have nothing to, to do with spiritual maturity. It's a slow burn. It's a process whereby God makes you what he wants. And what we have to do in your notes is recognize the insufficiency of man-made religion. You give yourself over to God. I had a friend ask me one time, he says, Pastor Scott, have you had the second baptism? And what he's asking me is, have you had that second supernatural experience? You know, you, you trusted Christ as your savior and you were born again, you were saved. But then later, you see, uh, there's this second baptism. There's a second spirit baptism where you receive the spirit. Now, I don't believe that. I believe that you receive the spirit when you're born again. You trust Christ and his spirit comes. One baptism. You are baptized in Christ and he gives you a new identity that you did not have before. And it's through that that he works to make you what he wants you to be. I don't believe in a second baptism. So he said, and, and I love this man. And he said, have you had the second baptism? I said, brother, I haven't got over the first baptism yet. <laughs> now, what we're gonna do in just a minute here is we're gonna have what's called believer's baptism. That spirit baptism, the true spirit baptism that happens when you trust Christ, when he immerses you in his spirit and you become one with all believers and one with Christ, that transformation that takes place is pictured when a believer trusts the Lord and in obedience, they, before, before a body, they step into the water. And as they go down into the water, that is symbolizing the inward transformation that their old nature was put to death and they were buried. And then God raised them up a new creation. They have resurrected in Christ, just like he did. He died, he was buried, and he rose. And just like his blood washes away their sin, they're in this water and it symbolizes the washing away of sin. Now, does this make you saved? No, no, it doesn't. You know what? I got a wedding ring right here. This wedding ring doesn't make me married, but it symbolizes that my heart belongs to another. And when you get baptized as a believer, this is God's wedding ring on your life. And you are testifying to the world who it is that you belong to. And that's a testimony. It's a testimony. It's a witness. And so I'm gonna pray right now. I'm gonna invite the people who have made this decision to be obedient to the Lord Jesus to come down as I pray. And I'm gonna give you an opportunity in this prayer to make a decision where you are. And if you would like in a moment to be baptized, you'll have that opportunity as well. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you 
for those who have come tonight to be obedient to you. You have given this great commission to us to go therefore and make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, we don't want to be ashamed of Jesus. We want to proclaim that it is Christ who saved us. It is Christ who lives in us. It is Christ who we follow. And there is no more beautiful picture that I can think of that illustrates that than baptism. If you're here tonight and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, with every head bowed, every eye closed, I would just like for you to pray along these lines with me. Dear Lord, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I believe that you love me, that you died for my sin in my place. You paid the price for my sin. I am trusting in that work and in your resurrection for my eternity. I believe on you that I might spend eternity with you. And I want to give my life to you that I may serve you. In Jesus' name.